Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Please be seated. Good morning, guys. Again. Greet you this morning. It's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to the moms. And a reminder, especially to the dudes, call your mom. If you already forgot the gift and the card and everything else, at least call her. Um, we recognize and pause and pay attention to the fact that Mother's Day is, is a wonderful and beautiful celebration for many, many people. Um, motherhood itself is extremely challenging and a job that uh, is far surpassing in difficulty than any other job that any person on this planet has. Um, and so we celebrate moms and we're super pumped that uh, you've been given God's grace um, to be moms and to uh, parent and shepherd your children. Um, and also we want to pause and recognize that sometimes Mother's Day can really stink, um, whether it's you having a tough relationship with your mom um, or you've lost your mom, um, or you're not a mom and want to be a mom, or wherever it can be on that scale, uh, this day can be kind of tough for some folks too. So uh, we want to celebrate and we want to pay attention, right? We want to be careful to recognize that uh, this world isn't just full of nothing but roses. Um, but if you are a mother and you're holding a dozen roses, then we want you to smell them deeply because that is grace. It is true grace. So let me just pray. Um, for the whole spectrum this morning before we jump into Luke 16. Thanks, Father, for this day. Um, we are grateful that, um, well, really all of us have moms, and uh, that's just true. Whether it's good moms, bad moms, absent moms, amazing moms, moms where we have strife and difficult in relationship with them, or maybe we're missing them uh, because they've gone on. Um, God, somewhere along the way, we've had obvious contact with a mom, and for this we're grateful because we know that in our moms you've given us a tremendous gift of yourself, of your love, of your care, of your tending, um, and your, your just genuine soft-hearted nature, and that that is how you are toward us, and so mothers reveal, in fact, a, an aspect of your nature um, 
to us, even though we call you Father God. Uh, we know in so many ways uh, your conduct toward us is much like an amazing mom um, in the way that you love us. So we thank you for this reality. We thank you for our moms. We pray in the places where we can uh, rejoice in the gift of our moms and, and celebrate our moms and speak to our moms lovingly and, and, and hear from them lovingly. Um, that, God, that you would just add um, weight to that grace to us today as we recognize that significance. Um, and, Lord, we also just pray for the brokenhearted. We pray for um, the reality that exists on this tainted earth, um, and that is uh, somewhere along the way the word mother uh, or the idea of motherhood may bring um, a bit of pain. Um, and so we pray for those who might be in that place, whether it's missing a mom who's, who's gone on or are struggling in their relationship with mom or are struggling to become a mom, um, wherever it is that, that uh, folks might stay, uh, sit on that spectrum, we ask that your grace would be near to them, um, that the sufficiency of Jesus would grow in their hearts, um, that the uh, great grace that God has given us um, would be something of tremendous comfort in the middle of hard times, and uh, that, God, you would help us hold on to the, the greater, the truer, the better promises, um, not of everything going well for us on this earth, but the, like even we'll see in Luke 16, the greater promise that there will be a great reversal one day, that all injustices will end, um, that the perfect righteousness of Jesus will prevail, um, and that even if we have missed out on something here on this earth, um, that one day when we see you perfectly and clearly and are with you um, and, and enjoying your presence um, holy, holy um, we know that in that day you will restore to us absolutely everything. Um, and so we pray that you would embed that deep hope in our hearts um, and that with that deep hope in our hearts, we would also be able to celebrate with those who celebrate that we would be able to cheer on those who are running the race of motherhood um, and that we would uh, point to Jesus, that we would point to um, the glory of God um, as we recognize mothers. God, thank you again for this day. And Lord, as we dive in to this last passage of Luke um, that may be somewhat familiar to us, um, I pray that you would do with it what you would have done to Jesus' first audience um, and that you would surprise us in some ways and uh, remind us in some ways um, and captivate our hearts and pull us closer into seeing uh, just the glorious truth of your grace given to people who don't deserve it. Uh, we thank you for this all, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of service, just want to re-mention that on May 26th, which is Memorial Day weekend, we're going to do church in the park at Flora Wiley Park right down by the bay. Don't come to the PAL on May 26th. Go to the park. Um, we'll have a sheet next week so you can say, hey, I'm going to bring you know, croutons, um, and, uh, and uh, somebody else will bring all the salad, no, whatever. We'll, we'll figure out some food stuff. We'll have a sheet for you to sign up to bring some food out. Uh, we'll have a short time of singing and uh, looking at the word together, and then uh, we'll just enjoy food, enjoy the park, uh, play some games, uh, chase kids, avoid bees, you know, all the awesome stuff at the park. So, that's uh, just a couple weeks away. Um, I want to start by reminding us of last week. So uh, these are the last two remaining parables from uh, Luke that we kind of forewent um, earlier, partly because uh, we wanted to get into some of the narrative of Luke and move toward Easter. 
Um, uh, so that's kind of why we skipped these two. Honestly, I skipped last week because that's a very hard parable, and I wanted to put it off till the last possible day because that's just kind of sometimes how I do. Um, and, uh, and so the, the challenge last week was in dealing with a, a, a funky parable about a guy who was losing his job and then lied to people to basically get himself a better life after he lost his job. It was kind of a strange parable. Um, and basically, it, it, it was a parable told to the disciples to try to help them realize that what they did with the stuff of this earth, you know, the stuff that's just going to go away when we die, um, that what we do with that stuff matters. Um, that does include wealth and money, but it also rec- includes time and talents and all sorts of stuff like that. But there was, there was a pervasive idea in Jesus' day um, that you kept your piety and your religious stuff over here, and then you had the whole rest of your life separate and over here, and the two really had nothing to do with each other. And so as long as you did the right sacrifices, prayed the right prayers, attended the right services, and gave the right alms, then you'd go to heaven. And then whatever you did over here to make your money, to get by in your relationships and so on and so forth, that really didn't matter so long as you kept the other stuff neat and tidy. And Jesus was trying to alert everybody to the fact that the the true revelation of your spiritual condition is going to be what you do with the stuff of earth, okay, how you steward the things that God has given you. And after Jesus finished telling that parable and kind of unpacking the truth of it, uh, he tells the disciples... You can't worship God in money. Uh, He uses the word mammon, which basically means worldly possessions. You can't worship God in mammon. You're either going to love one and despise the other or serve one and and cast aside the other. You cannot serve them both. Uh, And at that point, the Pharisees, who were also in the crowd listening to this story, went from despising Jesus to completely dismissing Jesus. They mocked him that he would say these kind of things. They were like... Yeah, right. <laughs> it doesn't matter how I make my money. It doesn't matter what I do with my wealth. It doesn't matter at all. I go to synagogue. I give the offerings at temple. I pray the prayers, and I'm good, right? And so they mock Jesus. Jesus has a little bit of an argument with them about the law. He tries to tell them, listen, the law, you're missing the point of the law, The law is actually not going to pass away. The gospel is here proclaiming a whole new reality to you. But what you do with your life does bear weight. It does matter. And then he launches into the parable that we're reading today. Okay. And so the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a little more targeted at the Pharisees whom Luke calls lovers of money. Okay. This parable is targeted at them. So the first parable Jesus tells the disciples, the Pharisees hear it. The Pharisees react, and Jesus says, oh yeah, because you're still missing it, here's another parable. And he tells the parable that we have today, right? And the, 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 the demarcation or the, 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 the uh, identification of the Pharisees as lovers of money helps us to realize that Luke thinks, and that Luke's contemporaries, or the people who told Luke about the stories that he writes about, that their view of the Pharisees is that they are, in fact, living in complete opposite of this teaching that Jesus just gave about worshiping God and mammon. They are, in fact, lovers of money, which means they are, in fact, haters of God. Because Jesus said you can't love money and love God. You can't serve money and serve God. You're going to love one 
and hate the other. So because they categorically are filed amongst lovers of money, okay, there's something significant being said about them. They're, in fact, haters of God. Right? That's severe. That's intense. And so is the story, right? So is the story. So let's jump in. I'm going to read the whole thing again, and then we're going to kind of dissect it uh, little by little. So this is uh, Luke 17, 19 through 31. It says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and was and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to here. And he said, I, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Uh, and he said to them, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, so first off, it's a parable again, right? Jesus is telling a story. Jesus is very clearly, um, according to the situation that's been presented to him, right? He's being mocked by lovers of money. Jesus chooses every single little detail of the story and tells it in such a way as to pretty much knock those guys off their feet. Okay, this story would have shocked the Pharisees. This story actually would have shocked even you and me if we were in Jesus' day. Okay, there was actually a, a kind of a common uh, tale for rabbis back in that day that would have gone somewhat like this story, except that it would have included the rich man giving alms to the poor man and then being able to go to heaven because of it. Okay, so Jesus actually kind of tells a story that other people are kind of hearing anyway, but he tells it in a specific way to kind of to open the eyes, right? Like we've said about parables, they're given to open the eyes and also to hide or to kind of conceal the truth of the kingdom for those that don't have eyes to see. And so Jesus chooses the two characters in this story, right? He's got the rich man and Lazarus. Now, it's, this, this isn't just a rich man. This is a rich man wearing rich man clothes. He's clothed in purple, right? Sorry, Amanda, you're in, you're in rich man clothes today. The color purple was an exquisite color, okay? It was, it was a color that meant it was expensive. It was a rare, uh, rare linen, and so it was something that belonged only to those who had wealth. And so not only was this a rich guy, but this is a really, really well-dressed rich guy. Jesus points out this fact, that he was dressed in purple and in fine linen, in case the purple didn't already clearly communicate that this guy was rich. And this guy feasted, right? This guy didn't just eat takeout. This guy feasted, right? 
I mean, this guy had buffets, and he had buffets sumptuously. I don't even know what it means to eat sumptuously. I, I think that just means everything's juicy, perfectly cooked, ex exquisitely prepared. Wine is flowing. There's no lack at all on his table. There is every detail given to make sure the crowd understands that this guy wasn't just rich, but this guy was fully rich and fully taking advantage of his riches. And then what do we have? We have the polar opposite. We have Lazarus. Right? Lazarus was a poor man, and as was a custom back then, a poor person would beg to get by. So this poor person was laid at the gate of the rich man's house, okay? Which seems to lead, lead us to think that he probably couldn't walk there himself. But people carried him and laid him at the gate. We also see maybe he couldn't walk because when dogs come to lick him, he doesn't fight them off, right? This guy's probably an invalid. Jesus is going very far to tell how absolutely uh, devastated this human being is. He, he eats so little that he dreams about eating the crumbs from the man's table. That would be feasting sumptuously for Lazarus. To eat from the crumbs of the table would be feasting sumptuously to Lazarus, right? And his body is covered with sores, and these dogs come and lick him. Now, these aren't pets, right? Like, these are gross. I mean, I'm a dog lover. I know we've got dog lovers. Listen, dogs don't get any favor in the Bible. They are gross, okay? They are basically big rats in most of the scriptures, okay? Um, in one case with a really evil prophetess in the Old Testament, she falls and dies and dogs eat her. I mean, it's like the, the greatest insult that could ever befall a human being is, is that this dog situation. And so this Lazarus is described by Jesus as the absolute polar opposite of the rich man. And often in that custom, in, or in that uh, culture, that poor person, Lazarus, would have basically been kept alive by just a little bit of the grace of the rich man. Okay, that most people would see a poor person and just give them enough to survive. And that would be often considered a very righteous deed. And so this wealthy man doesn't even do that. But what's interesting that for all their differences in the lives that they had, there's one thing that they have in common, and that is that they both die. Right? Something that is common to all. That no bit of wealth could preserve the rich man from. Um, he ended up with the same ending as Lazarus. In verse 22, the story carries on. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This was a shocking result. We're accustomed to the story, we've heard it before, or something like it, but to the people of Jesus' day, especially the Pharisees, who loved their riches, this story would have been a gigantic smack in the face. Okay? To say that the poor man entered heaven at the rich man entered hell grabs the attention of the audience and communicates a great reversal of the assumed fates. Okay? 
the assumed fates of this culture would be that those who are wealthy are favored by God and would be with him forever. And that those who are poor, those who are despised, those who are wounded, those who are with sores on their body are despised by God and will be forever forsaken by him. Those were the cultural assumptions of these people that Jesus is telling the story to. And so Jesus communicates that there is a great reversal. He communicates to these people that the values of heaven are the antithesis of the values of earth. Right? That those things which heaven treasures are not the same things that the earth treasures. That the things that heaven despises are not the same things that the earth despises. Jesus is communicating we need to know that there's something deeper and far contrasting to what is the norm in our everyday view of the world that there is something else going on, that there is a great reordering of things that will happen when the uh, end comes, that there will be a great reversal um, when it comes to eternity, that Jesus communicates that all of the injustices of this world will be turned on their head. And this is really, really good news, and we've seen it throughout all of Luke that this is always becoming or being received as good news for who? For those who are poor, for those who are pushed off to the side, for those who would be discounted from the privileged classes, that over and over again, the good news of the gospel becomes a refreshing wave of beauty for those who have been so despised and rejected, and that it is often the very thing that offends those who stand in privilege. And Mike McKinley says that we might be tempted to think that wealth is a sign of God's favor and approval, but it turns out that what we value is not what God values. In fact, he treasures the one who trusts in him and who obeys him. And so this shock would have come and hit the rich men in particular, the, the, the wealthy Pharisees, again, the ones who loved money and hated God, the ones who trusted in riches and did not put their faith in God, the ones who expected a return for that wealth on the other side, uh, they would have heard here loud and clear that Jesus was saying something completely different. And so the story continues. This guy calls out Father Abraham. Right? Jesus in his story is identifying this guy as, uh, as one of them, as a Jewish follower, Father Abraham, somebody who sees Abraham as father. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy, this is verse 24, and, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Jonathan Pennington says, once again, the gospel calls us to an inner person response of consciously adopting God's kingdom values and turning, <clears throat> excuse me, turning away from what is perceived as significant in sinful human society. This guy thinks that he should deserve to have some relief. This guy thinks that he should have, even afterward, Jesus is showing how this guy still thinks Lazarus should just be a servant, how, how Abraham should go do things for him. There's still this, this self-centered nature, this value turning that has happened in this guy's life, and Jesus is just alerting these men who love money of what's going on in, uh, in eternity. Again, this man has called out to Father Abraham, 
which would lead, to, lead us to think that he's, he's looked at the scriptures, that he's read the scriptures, that he's, he's often gone to the scriptures as a, as a rule for life. And yet here Jesus still tells the story of him being in eternal anguish. And this thought here is consistent with so much that Luke has taught in the scriptures, and that is that there is a deceptiveness to wealth, that there is a deceptiveness in this life to everything that just goes swimmingly for us. There's, there's, there's a, a lure in there, there's a trap in there that we just we need to be alert to. Whether we're lovers of money or not lovers of money, we need to pay attention to the dangers of money. And again, it's not simply money. This is mammon Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the stuff of earth that doesn't matter in eternity. The things that we possess here that ultimately have no true bearing on what we'll inherit in eternity. That we think if we have abundance here, we'll have abundance there. We have to be very careful to pay attention to that deceitfulness, right? And it's, if I, if I were to ever stand up here and say, I'm free from that deceitfulness, don't you know I don't have blah, blah, blah. I mean, that just, it doesn't matter at what level we have anything. It can always deceive us. And we're in a particularly dangerous place because most every single one of us, okay, not most, every single one of us, can look outside of ourselves, can look beyond ourselves, and see someone with more. Can we not? Every single one of us. We live in a day where it doesn't matter how much you have, you can look at someone else and say, they have more. There's more extravagance out there. There's more sumptuous feasting out there. There are finer purple linens out there. there every single one of us can say that. And so a, a great deceit that can enter into our lives is, well, I'm not that, so then I must be all right. Whether we have very little or abundance, we can always fall into the trap of thinking, well, somebody has more. Or for all that we spend, for all that we have, for all that we use, for all that we consume, most of us at some level are probably saying no to at least something out there, to at least some further extravagance, to at least some higher expense, right? Well, at least I didn't buy that brand. <laughs> at least I only go there once a week, right? At least I've only vacationed in this place. Right? We, we can always identify, if we were to really try to evaluate ourselves, we could always identify, well, really, I mean, I'm holding back something. I'm holding back something. Again, just this the deceit of riches. We can use these different comparisons and contrasts in our lives to justify the way that we do, in fact, measure ourselves based on what we have. It's really, really deceptive, and it's really, really nuanced, right? That's why we can't just walk around and identify people according to what the world identifies them as and say, this is what blessing from God looks like, and this is what curse looks like, Okay? There's something deeper, always something deeper than just simply the stuff of this life. And one other danger that we run into is the fact that our culture, our society, in some ways even our towns, even our geography, uh, they're designed in such a way to separate the Lazaruses from us. Most of us with very little effort 
can, for the most part, avoid anyone that would make us feel uncomfortable because of their poverty. For the most part, with very little effort. Some of us might take a little more effort than others, but for the most part, if we follow kind of the systems of this world, we can make sure to keep the them over there. You know, the ones that, when we see them, would make us feel a little bit, you know, the commercials you turn off? Like, we can make sure to keep the Lazaruses at a safe distance so that we don't feel that weight of like, boy, maybe I'm misusing the stuff I have. Maybe I should participate in a little more compassion. Maybe I should learn to love money less to help people like them, right? So our culture just sets us up for failure here to lead us to think there's always could be more and I'm always restraining something and those people are never truly in sight. And this story kind of challenges all of those things. And in the end, we see that this rich man is humbled and we see that the humble Lazarus is exalted. And again, this is the truth that Luke continues time and time again to point to. And this is kind of the point that the story drives home toward the end is how the scriptures have repeatedly and continuously and clearly pointed to the great reversal of the justice of God, the great reversal of eternity over laying over and above that which we see as normal here on this earth. So the final few verses, verse 27 and following, he said, then I beg you, Father, this is the rich man, Again, thinking Lazarus is just his errand boy. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see Jesus' tongue-in-cheek here? The one who will rise from the dead? <laughs> Saying, if they haven't seen it yet, even a risen man won't show them. Right? What happened after Jesus rose from the dead? These men, the kind that are being confronted in this story, tell stories to reason off the rising of Jesus. Here, they pay the guards. Just tell them the disciples came and stole away the body. Even the risen Jesus didn't shock them out of their disbelief. And so this rich man has five brothers. And we can assume, based on the story here, that the rich man's brothers are living under the same impression of wealth and eternity that he was living with that they have in their mind the th same thing that he had in his mind, that because I have wealth, because I have purple linens, because I have feasts every day, I therefore am favored by God, and I therefore will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, I've got five brothers, and they all think just like I thought. Somebody go warn them that that's wrong. Please, Abraham, go shock them out of their understanding. 
Go wake them up from their great slumber. That even though they feast and even though they enjoy wealth, they are in danger of the flames of hell. Please go and tell them. It's his way of saying, I didn't know. Is it not? It's his way of saying, I didn't have the right information. You didn't give me enough to go by. How was I supposed to know that poor people get to heaven without any wealth or righteousness to speak of? How was I supposed to know? How was I supposed to know that, that overabundantly sucking in all of my own resources and terminating everything on myself, how, how was I supposed to know that that would be something that would lead me to hell? How was I supposed to And Abraham's like, Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. No, 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 no. But if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll know. Abraham says, Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. You see, the rich man, had he really listened to Moses and the prophets, he would have known the value system of God. Right? He would have seen in the scriptures the heart of God for the poor. He would, have, uh, he would have observed in the prophets the outcry against the wealthy oppressors within the kingdom of Israel who were warned again and again, turn from your wicked ways, repent, and love the poor, and serve the outcast. Care for those outside your city walls. Again and again, the prophets made these warnings. He would have understood if he had truly sought the truth of the scriptures that wealth in the sight of God is a responsibility to be used for the benefit of others, not something to be enjoyed solely for the self. He would have seen this if he really had listened to the scriptures. Again, this is a parable, and Jesus is very carefully and intentionally picking the details of the parable to point us to something profound and true, and that is that Jesus is saying the scriptures are sufficient in and of themselves to reveal to us the upside-down reality of the kingdom of God. The scriptures point us to the reverse value system of heaven. The scriptures point us to the fact that this world has perverted everything and that God doesn't think according to this earth's values. The scriptures are enough to point us to this understanding of eternity. The scriptures are sufficient to warn us about the deceitfulness of mammon. The scriptures are sufficient to show the way to Abraham's side if we listen to them. Because like we've seen in Luke again and again, the scriptures are sufficient to help us see that grace can't be bought. That God's grace isn't something we earn a right to. That based on our present earthly circumstances, we can make a discernment about whether we're favored by God or not. The scriptures show us again and again, you can't measure this favor by what you see on this earth. You can't gauge God's love towards you based on the circumstances that you find yourself in. The two are not related. God's love for you supersedes your circumstances if you find yourself poor and licked by dogs like Lazarus. God's love supersedes those scenarios. And God's love does not 
need your wealth or success or self-righteousness. That's been much of the point of Luke, is to help us see that grace comes to the undeserving, not to the deserving. That grace comes to the undeserving based on the worthiness of Jesus, not on the worthiness of the recipient. That grace comes to those who are undeserving based on the worthiness of Jesus to the glory of God. Why? So that Paul picks this up so that no man may boast. So that when we are at Abraham's side, at that place of communion with those beloved by God, when we are in that place, we will look at our life and we will say, I don't deserve to be here. Based on what I had there, what I did there, and how things went for me, I, I didn't deserve this. That's what the scriptures point to again and again. This is why repeatedly we walk through the scriptures so that we might see that God's inspired and trustworthy and perfect word is completely sufficient for us to reveal to us the truth that this rich man missed. Again and again we've seen in Luke that the grace of God will reach to those who are seen as unworthy. The grace of God will reach to those who are seen as unworthy. And when it reaches those who are seen, of, seen as unworthy, it produces a humility and a fruit that does not come because of the stuff that we have on earth, but rather a humility and a gratitude that comes from recognizing I've been given much more than I've ever deserved, right? And in the same way, it often blows right past those who think they have a right to it. Well, I was born in the, well, I've always been raised to, well, I've always had this in the, I have no claim, says Lazarus, whose name, by the way, means helped by God. And while this parable definitely speaks about riches because these Pharisees love money, it also generally speaks to us about those things that we love most, okay? For you, it might not be riches. For you, it might not be the temptations of seeking nothing but earthly comfort and earthly pleasure. For you, it might be a towering intellect, right? Or a particular vocation. Maybe it's a pedigree or maybe it's a look or something that you've been really proud of, a talent or some kind of gift. We can look at any of these things that God has given and consider them to be things that we own, and consider them to be things that identify us as worthy human beings. We can take these things into the self, things that God has given as gifts, not because we earned it, but because he just simply chose it. We can choose these things, we can pull them into the self, and we can completely justify our existence on them and consider ourselves worthy of heaven because of the way we've handled them. We can do that. We can do that with anything. We can do that with anything. The central matter on which this rich man has staked his life 
was something that he perceived was a blessing from God and an indication of the favor of God on his life. When in fact it was a test, a test that he failed. And so too, likewise, can be the talents, the gifts, the accomplishments, the intellect, whatever that we have that's been given to us by God. If we make it the central thing of our life, we might be tempted to identify ourselves around them and think, therefore, this thing is an indication of God's blessing in my life. It is an indication of his favor that will carry me into eternity because I have this thing that must mean that God has welcomed me into his kingdom. We can do the same type of thing with all these other things that the man did with riches in his life. Michael Wilcox says, however, the story could be equally uh, well have featured a politician with his power or an academic with his brains or even a preacher with his eloquence. Take warning, Derek. Indeed, anyone with any kind of resource or skills, if you base God's view upon your life on a gift that he's given you, be careful lest your foot slips, lest you've staken your life on an idol. Michael Wilcock goes on to say, I don't have the direct quote, but he, he kind of talks about how we all have a possession of sorts. We have something that we are gifted with in this life, whether it's a sum of money or a talent or an opportunity or a particular intellect, even just a beating heart and a body and a bit of time. We've, we've all been given something. And also, he argues, we've all been given a Lazarus at the door. The Lazarus at the door is some test case of any sort that stands in contrast to the gift that we believe belongs to it. Whether it's a specific person with an actual name or, or merely a kind of person, a type of person, or perhaps an entire population of a cer certain status, these Lazaruses at the door are provided to us that we might use the gift we've been given for the greater good of others rather than just spoil everything on ourselves. What is it in your life that you've been given that you despise others for not having? And then what do you do with that dichotomy in your world? Right? In the case of the rich man, he was given all the wealth, and it all terminated on the self, and a man who just needed some morsels and a little bit of bandages, <laughs> right, was right there at his gate, meaning he passed by him every day and he walked right past the opportunity to use the gift that God had given him for the benefit of others. Jesus summarized the law and the prophets by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And so this, this test case for many of us is somebody that doesn't look like us, somebody that isn't from where we're from, that side of the tracks or that region of the world. Somebody who doesn't know the stuff that we know, who isn't wise to the game like we are, who isn't aware of all the things that we are knowledgeable about, who isn't earning the income that we've attained to. That test case is given to us time and time again to see how are you going to look at people like that? How are you going to treat those that are different than you? What are you saying 
about them with your friends or in your own mind or in your own heart. It's, it's pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something deeper. It's pointing to something that you believe deep inside you about what you deserve and what others deserve. Based on my look, do I avoid contact with people that look like that? Based on my personality, do I avoid people, avoid people that have that personality like that? Based on my mastery of some skill set, do I treat people without that mastery in a particular light, dismissing them, mocking them, considering them unfavorable? Right? This is, this is a, an intense comparison that is made by this parable. Do we think that what we have is something that we've earned to be used for ourselves? Or do we think that what we have is something given by God to be stewarded for the care of others? Which is the love of God. That is the love of God. Giving to others, caring for others, thinking of others, mindful of others. So the question then becomes, what is it that you received and why do you think you received it? Did God give you a gift so that you can take aim only at this life? This pulls the, the truth of the last parable into this one. Did God give you that gift just to terminate on this life? Or did he give you that gift to help point you towards something greater in eternity? Did he give you that gift so that you might use said gift in light of eternity? See, I haven't said a whole lot about hell, even though hell is definitely prevalent in this parable. And we have to be careful. Jesus isn't like giving us details about the afterlife, you know, where people be like talking to each other and between heaven and hell. And, you know, I mean, there's, this is a story illustrating certain things. In fact, most of what we have in scriptures isn't like a, a bunch of finely knit details about heaven and hell. It's actually a bunch of poetry, a bunch of word pictures, okay, a bunch of, it's hard to grasp, and we just know there's a difference, and that it's significant, and it's forever, and that the presence of God is different in the places, and that, I mean, there's regret and torment, as opposed to peace, and comfort. But there's something to be said from this parable about the kind of person that belongs at Abraham's side and the kind of person that belongs in Hades. In the end, it seems that Jesus is saying that hell belongs to those who turn every gift and every opportunity and every resource in on the self. When self becomes God, when mammon becomes God, when intellect becomes God, when opportunity becomes God, when, when those things become God, then hell becomes the natural destination because hell seemingly is God giving you the thing that you've most wanted in your life, yourself, or giving you the things that you've most wanted in your life which can't last past this life. So much of this reality is communicated in this parable, but the, the man 
even in Hades, is still saying, Lazarus, serve me. Abraham, do me a favor. Hey, me, 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 at my beck and call. When self, when idols, when all these things are our ultimate love, man, heaven's not an exciting place where God is center, (laughs) where others are more important, where God's glory is all that matters. If all I care about is my glory, I don't want any of that. This rich man just gives us a strong warning about the idolatries that we have in our life. It points us to this stewardship of the love and the gifts and the opportunities that God has given us. God wants us to see that what we do with what we have echoes forever because it reveals our heart. It reveals our heart. When we love our stuff, it shows us what's most valuable, and it's the self. Whether it's the comfort or the privilege or the praise or whatever. But when love of God is first, it actually leads us to despise the things of this world that would give us a separate identity from that which he's given us. Right? And we see the import, the, uh, one of the points of Luke's entire gospel up to this point has been this. He's alerted us. He's, he's brought to our attention time and time again. He said, look, look at the despised people in this world. Look at, look at those who are, who are pushed aside. Look at, at the ones that are dismissed. Look at the fringes of society not the neat, tidy, little religious gatherings. Look on the down and out, look on the weak, look to the children, and look to the lost. And there you will find those who are ripe to receive the kingdom of heaven. There you will find those who have a joyful reception to the good news of God's grace. There we will see the kind of attitude that heaven seeks. We can observe the fertile soil of soft hearts and humble spirits. Luke has been telling us this again and again. Look at who the grace of Jesus reaches to. All those that you would think don't deserve it. And their response, they come running. They come running. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me what is truly valuable. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me that which is true riches. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me that I cannot earn and I do not deserve the grace that God alone has given through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so may we take warning. Listen, we've got a lot of reasons to dismiss talk of richness, right? Well, I'm not one of the, well, I don't, you know, let's just be humble and go, okay, what do I got to hear? What do I need to hear, Jesus? If I am here trusting in myself or or trusting in my riches or trusting in my social status or in my intellect, Lord, help me not to trust in those things. May, in fact, this be our refrain. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. He is who we place all our confidence in. 
right? We walk up to him and say, God, I know I'm not getting it right. I know when I look to my left, blind spot. When I look to my right, blind spot. When I look in front of me, I'm confused. When I look behind me, I'm prone to judgment. I miss it day in and day out. Time to, I miss these things, Lord. Would you have grace on me? Would you rescue my heart from the love of stuff that will disappoint me and pull my heart into the love and the trust of the one who will never let me down? This is Christ. On him we stake it all. I'm not going to be at Abraham's side because of something I did, because of something I possessed, because of something I identified myself with. I'm going to be at Abraham's side because of Jesus and all of Moses and all of the prophets and all of the gospels point to this fact that it is Christ and Christ alone that I should have my confidence in. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Jesus, we need you. Today, we need you. This afternoon, we need you. Tonight, we need you. Tomorrow, when we wake up, we'll need you. There is no point in our career at which we won't need you. There is no place within our world that we could live where we can say, I don't need you. Our families won't come to some point of arrival where we can finally say, I don't need you. Our retirement accounts, our vacation plans, our homes, all these things, we can never look to them and say, we don't need you. We're desperate when it comes down to it. We are poor, despised, broken beggars when it comes down to it. And the only claim we have on being by your side is that Jesus has said, my grace is theirs. My life lived for them. My death died in their place. My resurrection, a gift to be enjoyed forever by those who trust in me. Yeah, this isn't a this isn't a story about making us feel guilty for driving a car or having a house or eating food. This isn't a story given to us to be feeling guilty for a good vacation or even a plan for retirement. This is not the point. This is not the point. So Jesus, help us go past the surface and plumb to the depth and recognize how fickle our hearts can be and how desperate we are for you. We need you to rescue us because we won't get it right. If we pay attention to one or two Lazaruses in our life, there'll be still another five or six. We will never get this right. By your grace and the power of your spirit, we hope that we reorient our lives, yes. But heaven will not be ours because we nail this. Heaven will be ours 
because of Jesus. And because we say, I don't trust in anything. I don't trust in my ability. I don't trust in my religion. I don't trust in my duties. I don't trust in what I've done. I trust in Jesus and what he's done. And with a heart like that, might you transform us to be the kinds of people who proclaim good news to all of the kinds of people that are totally different than we are. The people who, the people who we think would be despised. God, might we have a different posture toward Lazarus because we've been rescued by grace. May we refrain and be arrested from looking down our nose at anyone for any reason. May we be absolutely stopped in our tracks whenever we think that someone is undeserving of grace. God, would you just wreck us in this way? Transform our hearts to live according to the value system of eternity rather than this fickle and broken value system of the world. And God, we, it, that's a miracle. If you do that, that's a miracle. Work in our hearts, change our perspective, awaken us to grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.